Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I want to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Ramones for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone and a wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to check out and join the Stick to Facebook, Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. It is free. It is cool, good, uh, cool wrestling conversation. Uh, sometimes we go outside the wrestling barrier, but that's okay. And it's free. Just search it. Uh, ask to be asked to join, and I will immediately put you in. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter. Uh, just search John McAdam and fight the guy. Uh, follow the guy who has Don Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs in his avatar. Before we get rolling with this week's show, I want to bring on our guest. I haven't had him on in too long. It has been too long since Scott Cornish has joined us. Scott, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks. I was getting a little ticked off, as a matter of fact. But, uh, <laughs> I heard you were getting very ticked Ramones, off. The Ramones intro, really, uh, sort of made up for it. Okay. <laughs> I, I came up with that last minute in case you couldn't, in case you didn't figure that one out. It's like time to record. And I'm well, like, somebody, wait a minute. I want to have a song to mangle. Well, somebody mentioned that it's been, uh, I'm getting my dates all mixed up, but somebody mentioned it was something like 25 years, like this week that they played their last show, something like that. That, and, that uh, sounds about right. I, and I saw them a couple of weeks before they, finished they were just doing the tail end of Lollapalooza and then they did some show down in the South America or someplace and and then the last show out in California so I saw them very very late in the game but um uh, always a favorite of mine I still say that day it was broiling hot in Syracuse and they were on the Lollapalooza tour and they played in the afternoon which was, was unusual I've seen them play inside outside clubs and things like that never on that scale, never on a big, massive stage. And the only thing that people were eating were these cheap little individual pan pizzas, personal pizzas, rather. And they were served on a little little piece of cardboard, a round piece of cardboard. And when the Ramones went on, every song, John knows about them, and I'm sure Lou knows them very well, every song just sounded like a number one hit. You know, all those songs that we grew up with and lived with, you know, and looking around the place that I was in outside was like a dust bowl. And when I looked around, all I could see in the air was dirt, dust and flying cardboard discs, you know, as far as the eye could see. (laughs) It was just completely crazy. And even though they were far from the headliners, you know, they have elder statesman uh, status. And it was just so exciting to see them on a huge stage with a huge audience going completely crazy, you know, and uh, the way they always should have been. You know, know, I saw them play three times and I am a huge Ramones fan. They were were bad. All they got worse and worse every show. And (laughs) the third show, Joey was like completely out of it. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's me. I'm just having a bad influence on these guys. Yeah, they, in their in their later days, 
um, they had some, they they had some uh, some rough shows reportedly. Or maybe I was such a fan that I couldn't tell you know, <laughs> good from bad. But I saw them in not in their very first days, but maybe starting seventy eight, seventy nine, and quite a bit. Uh, throughout the, the the 80s and then only near the very end, like I mentioned. So, yeah, there were some bad days. Somebody yesterday mentioned that they recorded ads for Steel Reserve beer, which is one of the worst beers that's ever been created. <laughs> Sorry for this diversion. Oh, but, Steel uh, Reserve. I know what that is. Oh, that's like liquid crack, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, it's a it's not in the way that it's addictive. It's addictive only because it's cheap. It's a horrible, you know, painful beer to drink, you know, very cheap, very awful, gives you a bad headache. But in the period that you probably saw them do really bad shows, they also cut some jingles for uh, Steel Reserve beer. So, so that's when I hear people say, oh, God, I saw them and they were lousy. I, I think, oh, that's their Steel Re- that was in their Steel Reserve beer days. <laughs> Isn't that like twelve or fourteen percent alcohol beer? Is that the stuff I'm thinking um, about? No, no. Steel Reserve was is Pittsburgh's cheapest beer, and even even by cheap beer standards, it fails. You know? <laughs> oh man, I, I I don't think I've ever tried it, but obviously I'm not familiar with it. I mean, one last Ramones thing have- before we. What's that? Nothing. Just a beer. I, I don't want to get too far too far off course but there used to be a joke around here it's probably a joke around anywhere there used to be a local beer here in my area the utica rome area called fort schuyler beer and it was the worst and the cheapest so lots of people bought it around here because it was so darn cheap and the story was or the joke was why is fort schuyler beer like making love in a canoe and why the answer is, it? is they're both they're both fucking close to water <laughs> 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 I'm sure that's not an original joke, but that was the joke. Sorry. Okay. No, my last Ramones quip is going to be that I, during their last tour, they were on Howard Stern's show, and it was Joey, oh, Marky, yeah. and Johnny. And Joey and Marky are like, oh, we should keep doing this. I feel like, you know, success is right around the corner. And Johnny's just like, nope, not even going <laughs> to consider it. Really? <laughs> that was wow. it. Nope. I mean, Johnny wanted to. He was amazing in that. Go ahead. No, Johnny wanted to make say make a million dollars, have a million dollars saved, and then he was getting off the road. He had his million, and then he died. It was it was really sad. Did you ever hear about his baseball card collection? Um, no. I know he's a huge baseball fan, but no. At one point, he had every baseball card ever. That's how big a fan he was. That surprises me because he had, I mean, he enhanced the reputation in his book, but supposedly, like, he saved just about every dollar he made uh, in order to get to that million. Like, he, you know, was sad that he had to spend money on flowers on his wedding wedding day. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's. uh... Let's stick to wrestling. <laughs> I, I think we're, part of me Probably is avoiding having to talk about Bobby Eaton, who we're, we're recording this uh, on Saturday, August the 7th. And two days ago, we learned that Bobby Eaton had passed away. And this one hit me hard for whatever reason. I, I, I knew 
Bobby was having some health or had some health problems going back like 15 years. And I didn't realize to, to what extent those problems were. Like I, I just read that, you know, he was not doing well physically because of all the, the bumps he took in the ring. Yeah. I, yeah. I hadn't heard it to what degree, but it never sounded good. The last couple of years, a lot of heart issues. Yeah. And I, I'm not true. I assume that that's what got him, but I don't know that. Not to mention he just losing his wife about a month ago. And that, you know, I mean, I had I had an aunt and an uncle who died, did the same thing. They died right around the same time. And I'm convinced that, you know, my uncle kind of, you know, both of them were older. And I think he just kind of gave up like, and he died like four weeks later. So I believe that that's a real thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a, a landlord and, and landlady that lived upstairs from them, actually where I still live now. But they were an older couple. She was probably in her late 80s, and he was probably all of 90. And they passed away the same day. Within, oh, wow. Uh, you know, within hours of each other. One of them passed in the morning, the other in the afternoon. And they were separated, so it's not entirely, I mean, only on a psychic level, but that they knew that the other had passed. I don't think either one knew that the other had, had passed, but. Anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. But um, we're going to bring a showdown, Scott. Uh, <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> but, but yeah, no, the, the Bobby Eaton thing is really, really tough. It's only, you know, only in a selfish way is it uh, lessened by the fact that you just marvel at what a great talent he was. And I never take it for granted when I got to see somebody like the Ramones or whoever that I admire so much or, or revere as a fan and then I got to see them at their absolute best. And I don't know, because I, I didn't see him in Memphis, but uh, maybe I, I kind of think I saw Bobby at his absolute best. But that his best period lasted a long time. It, it did. I mean, Bobby, just by coincidence, three days before he passed away, I was watching Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton against the Steiners, and Bobby did that leg drop from the top rope, and it was phenomenal, wow. and it looked devastating, and yet you knew like it was as light as a feather. I mean, he was so talented. Yeah, and he'd been doing that for quite a while at, at that point. Well, you talk about, I mean, anybody that they put him with, even George Goulas, not, not that that made for a great team, but you hear about that and you go, God, I'd like to see some of that, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. Even with everything you've heard about, about Goulas and Cornette swears that, that Bobby and Coco in Memphis was, was Bobby at his best. Can you imagine? Like he rates that up with, you know, the greatest stuff that, that he and the Express did. But boy, yeah, you think about Bobby and Arn, what a fantastic team that was. I like anything involving Regal, so Bobby and, and and William Rico was unbelievable. You know, one of my most disappointing nights sure. as a wrestling fan was June 1991 when they had uh, Bob Eaton scheduled against Ric Flair. And I'm watching this Clash of the Champions live, and it's past 10 o'clock. It ends at 10:30, and they've got Steve Austin out there doing a squash match. And I was like, you know, come on, this is what uh, Clash of the yeah. Champions was made for. And, you know, oh, yeah, a, yeah. a really good match between Ric Flair and Bobby Eaton, something you couldn't put on pay-per-view 
because Bobby wasn't a, enough of a, a, a big enough star, but it, you know, too big a match for just Saturday night. So you put it on the clash of the champions and you give these guys 40 minutes. No, they gave them like 15 minutes. Yeah. That's always been frustrating when you know, as a fan that you're, you're boxed into 15 minutes plus commercials and ugh. Oh yeah. I mean, if I recall correctly, the, it was a two out of three fall match. The first fall went like 10 minutes. And then the next two falls went like two minutes each. It was, it was a real gut punch, but I mean, Bobby Eaton, the Midnight Express is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Like, if I had to make a list, Ric Flair would be number one, and really, Jim Cornette and the Midnights might be number two, you know, based on what day it is. It might be Terry Funk, it might be Chris Jericho, sure. it might be Jerry Lawler, but I mean, that's that's how yeah. much I top thought five of them. for sure. Yeah, top five, for sure, you know. And like I said, so it, it's great that we got to see so much so much of him at his best, you know. You're not telling stories, you know. I know that there are wrestlers, you know, from a bygone era that I got to see none of, you know, like a Ray Stevens or something, you know. Yeah. Only when they were really old and almost retired. But um yeah, yeah, I yeah, I only think about like somebody said, Oh, there's no there's no footage of uh the old uh NWA area where uh Bobby Eaton feuded with Randy Savage, you know, they're both fairly rookies, you know, I can only imagine what those are like, because I never believe that everything is gone when people say, oh, there's no tape that exists. Is it? Well, then, you know, somebody kicks over a box or finds some tape or something like that. But yeah, just as a fan, you just think, oh, wow, Bobby and Savage when they were really, really young you know, and hungry. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, I, I, of course you can't prove that something doesn't exist, but I am inclined to think that that stuff just is not out there for no other reason than, you know, a, it was a long time ago before VCRs were, were common and B it was a, a low population um, area. I mean, old WWF stuff is, I mean, there's a lot of it out there, but certainly not all of it. And that, that stuff that aired in, you know, Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. and, And sometimes that's hard to find. Yeah. Well, like I said, you can always uh, you can always hope that some weird thing is going to happen, but uh, and, uh, somebody will find a box of shoe boxes. Yeah, we can only hope. I mean, sometimes stuff just yeah. shows up. Hulk Hogan would complain about you know his he wished he had a different finishing hold because he said the leg drop blew out his back. And, you know, not to undermine anything Hogan said, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure his, his back, his back, and I know his back and his knees are gone. Um, but, you know, when he said that, I'm like, wow, I, I imagine, imagine if he came off the top rope with it, like Bobby Eaton and Bobby seems <laughs> fine. And it's like, no, Bobby wasn't fine. He was just, he kept quiet about it. Sure. Yeah. Like everything else. <laughs> he uh, kept quiet. That, that, but, you know, uh, yeah, he did. He was not a complainer. and. You know, I heard that the, you know, the last few years of his life were kind of tough. I, I kind of just found out the extent of it, but it, it's really, really sad to see him go. I believe by the time this comes out, uh, Jim Cornette will address it on his show. And uh, that's not going to be, I'm going to listen to it. It's not going to be easy, easy to listen to, though. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, he's definitely a, a real heartfelt, emotional type of person. And he said publicly. Regardless of who, he does not 
you know, he doesn't run on Twitter to express his condolences about any, and doesn't really like to eulogize, doesn't like to attend funerals. And, uh, and that's just from, you know, longtime colleagues or people he admired, let alone somebody that, uh, made his career, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be something to hear. I, I, uh, It'll be uh, it'll be interesting. Brian will do a good job with that, I'm sure. But uh, looking forward to it. Oh, the yeah. same here. Bad, bad way, I guess. <laughs> I mean, Scott, you were there, uh, Smoky Mountain Fan Week uh, in '94, oh. when someone asked Jim Cornette, like, "Why don't you bring in Bobby?" And Jim says, "I can't compete with WCW. What they're doing with him, Bobby's job once a week is to walk to the mailbox and get a check for $3,000. I can't compete with that. And I thought that, that cracked me up. <laughs> right. Didn't he do something, you know, a couple of things like around the time of the Tom Robinson benefit, he was there, but didn't wrestle. Didn't he do make an appearance in ECW at one point, not with Cornette, but I I'm just don't thinking think of, so. of strange one-off appearances that he made, you know, I, I, yeah, don't... I he never showed up in Smoky Mountain, I guess if they had, in, there was a brief window when uh, when Cornette was working with WCW and Watts, <laughs> that was a very brief time. You know, had that lasted, who knows? You know, he might have gotten a chance to use Bobby, but uh, yeah, that was just a you know unfortunate, I guess, not for Bobby, not for Bobby, unfortunate for them that. Uh, he could never make a shot in the Smoky Mountain. How great that would have been. No, he, he actually did make, make a few spots in Smoky Mountain when, uh, like you said, when, when they were working with Watts, but that didn't last. I mean, I mean, Bobby, I remember reading an interview with him and he's like, you know, for the most part, he was staying home and getting paid to do so. But he said, you know, every now and then a FedEx envelope shows up with a plane ticket and I just go and, you know, just on some meaningless huh. house show someplace. And he just rolled with it. Did you see any really great title changes or historic matches with the Express? I did not. I have the handheld or the partial handheld of them winning the uh, NWA tag team titles from Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. But I mean, this was back in the day where, you know, titles did not change hands frequently. And, you know, I would go to the shows in Boston. I went to all of the shows in all of the NWA shows in Boston. And then I would occasionally, you know, either get on Amtrak or a flight and go to the NWA shows in Philly and Baltimore. And yeah, I can't think of any title changes I saw. Yeah. Anything in particular though, that stands out with the express. Um, just great matches. I'm sure. But... Yes. They had a great match in Boston, 1988 against the fantastics. It was like a four and a half star match. And Bobby Whoa. Fulton got sick in the middle of it. And I actually really? mentioned it on Twitter and Bobby's like, you know, I'm like, what would you have some bad Chinese food or something? He's like, no, I just, I, I didn't throw up. I just kind of spat something out. I'm like, okay, <laughs> it was a great match. <laughs> I think I only saw the midnight express with Cornette once. And it was Stan and Bobby in Syracuse. They had a real incredible blowout show. The first time this was in 89 that they came to Syracuse of all the great matches that were on the show, like Flair versus Funk and, and all of this, the Midnight Express versus the uh, Hayes, Garvin, Freebirds. <laughs> so, 
I wasn't, you know, I didn't get a four-star classic that night, but I was thrilled to uh, just finally see the Midnight Express live. I was lucky enough to see the first non-TV match where Stan Lane was a member of the Midnight Express, uh, Boston, April oh, wow. 1987. I confirmed that with Jim Cornette, that, yeah, that was Stan Lane's first day, you know, outside of the uh, studio in Atlanta. And now I can't remember who they wrestled. Probably, probably Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. And I saw that oh, in Baltimore. That yeah, was that, a good match. Yeah, that compares to the time that I... I saw the very first gig that Richie Ramone ever played <laughs> right here, right here in Utica. Wow. And he joined the drum chair. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> His first night in. Yeah, the Ramones oh, wow. were worse than Spinal Tap when it came to drummers at that one point. And then they finally, when ah. Marky came back, it kind of evened out. They had a guy named Elvis Ramone who wanted too much money. He wanted $500 a night guaranteed, well, that, and that wasn't happening. Well, that's Clem Burke. Yes. Blondie. Yeah. <laughs> he actually he was, wanted yeah. like, real money. Real money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they got other guys that uh, came in later, like Richie and CJ and stuff like that. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> not Moans fans out there, and I know there are a couple of you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, those guys that came in later weren't even considered Ramones. I'm not even sure Marky was ever considered a full band member. I, I, but, I think Marky was a real Ramon. I think CJ was, too. Oh, he was fantastic, but I don't think he was considered, you know, a voting member of the band, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. I know what you're saying. Sorry. No, that's oh, that's no. okay. <laughs> we, you know what? We, the, the, the podcast is called Stick to Wrestling in kind of a uh, sarcastic way because I took it from the guy who had a Stick to Football podcast, which he no longer has. And, uh, you know, anytime he said something, you know, having to do with any culture or whatever, someone would be like, oh, stick to football. And, you know, so he has the sarcastic <laughs> podcast, and I asked him permission if I could do stick to wrestling, and he said yes. <laughs> Another death the wrestling world is dealing with is Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin, one of the greatest, mm. if not the greatest, uh, heel of all time. Uh, he was phenomenal in Florida. I saw him as he was getting a little bit older, and, you know, Physically, he was kind of, when I saw him, he was like this old, I could tell he was older and he was overweight, but man, he was a menace. Oh, yeah. I, and I've seen very, very little of his stuff. I believe everything that people say. Yeah. And it, and it can you imagine, you just said possibly the greatest, uh, I don't like to throw in qualifiers like that, especially on someone's, someone's passing, but um yeah, greatest of all time. Yeah, it's to, to my, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it's a failing of mine that I got to see so little of, of what he did. Yeah, he was very much in his final years whenever I saw stuff, other than going back and watching tapes. But yeah, anybody that grew up down there and saw him definitely are, uh, are firm believers in that. I saw him on cable, Championship Wrestling from Florida, and he was feuding with Dusty Rhodes when Dusty was NWA champion in 1981. And I mean, this guy was totally believable despite his age, despite his weight, et cetera. It must've been. Yeah. Wow. I would have loved that. <laughs> Where I was at as a fan in 81, there was nothing else for me other than WWWF. And so later years when I got, when we got cable and things like that, did I ever see anything other than, uh, 
hometown WWF product. Yeah, even growing up as a WWF fan, I was like, you know, I, I've said this before, like, wow, I bet there's better wrestling out there. The, the, Georgia just looks <laughs> better in the magazines. Florida just looks better in the magazines. And I, it, it was true. Yeah. I mean, those promotions are just way better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it, the same thing that grabs you, grabs you regardless of what you what you grow up watching, yeah. I, the people that grow up in Kansas City say, "Oh, it wasn't that bad." <laughs> Central State. Oh. I really enjoyed it. Some guy the other day, he told me his favorite ever was Rufus R. Jones, and who am I to argue? <laughs> wow, I, you know what? I really believe that if I grew up in Kansas City or Topeka or Detroit or Vancouver, I would have <laughs> never become a wrestling fan. <laughs> oh, that's that's possible. I always tell the story about Harry White. Harry White grew up in St. Louis, an absolute mecca for professional wrestling. He says, no managers, one interview an hour, <laughs> no, no, no spice, no crazy stuff. And when he would say things from Memphis, he'd say, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, talk about a stark contrast between promotions. I mean, they wouldn't even let Baron Von Raschke call himself. They, they just called him Von Raschke. Like they were not, and he did not have the cape. They just didn't put up with stuff like that. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So the assassin, I mean, I, I certainly know, you know, he went through Gulf Coast and uh, Georgia and Florida. Did he have any notable runs outside the South? I mean, he headlined Madison Square Garden when he was 19 years old in the 60s. So it, it's not a, but as, uh, not, not with a mask. So oh, as the assassin. No, not that I, not that I can think of. Yeah. No, he strictly stayed yeah. uh, in Florida. Oh, not, not in Florida, mm-hmm. in the South, excuse me. Right. Now, he would have been, he would have yeah. been good up here against Bruno or Backland. Oh yeah, I bet he would have. Yeah, shoot. So they have one well, more death that happened this week. Burt Prentice. I mean, I'm sure there's no one out there without uh, a Burt Prentice story. I've never met the man, but one thing he said in an interview that cracked me up. Uh, you, do you know who Gordon Scazzari is, Scott? Oh, oh, yes. Only by reputation, but yeah. All right. Gordon was trying to run a national promotion in 1991 or 1992, and he had a big taping up here in Lowell, Mass., that I attended that <laughs> drew, oh God, maybe 200 people. It was absurd. And he spent supposedly over a hundred thousand dollars on this night, flying people in, paying rent, paying the wrestlers, etc. And I read an interview with Bert Prentice. He's like, Oh my gosh, you could run a territory for that money for six months. And I'm like, this guy doesn't know the territories are dead. Come on. He's out there promoting. They're dead. Don't, don't even bother. <laughs> no, that's my, yeah. Uh, go ahead. No, Mr. that's Prentice. my big Burt Prentice um, memory as well as him being uh, a I Christopher have... love on Southwest championship wrestling, which was really out there for 1983. What's funny about that is uh, that, you know, now there, I, I had cable at that point and that was on USA. So I got to see him debut as Christopher Honey Love in uh, <laughs> Southwest managing Tully. Yes. Um, and I just thought, oh, you know, and I always was into the managers. I was like, oh, well, there's a bad guy manager that um, that I've never seen before. But that was literally the first thing he ever did on camera. 
never appeared on camera before he was Christopher Love in Southwest. So pretty crazy to you know, have to see him at at the very very start of his career. Uh, and two other little little anecdotes about him. Once again, a, a Harry White story. Harry White went to Memphis and got into the WMC tapings uh, that morning. He was in Memphis because he knew Bert, and Bert got him in there. And Bert drops Harry's name during the live show. And um, he just says, ah, my good friend, you know, he was a heel manager. He says, ah, my good friend Harry is here from St. Louis today, and blah, blah, blah. He gets on the back and gets his ass chewed up by Jerry Lawler. You know, what the hell are you doing out there? You know, <laughs> I believe it. you're not supposed to talk about your friends on the, on the mic in wrestling. That's like a rule. Even I'm even familiar with, uh, for those unaware, <laughs> Burt Prentice did, uh, Christopher love, or what was it? Was it, it was Christopher love, right? Christopher honey love. Yeah. Christopher honey love. And he, it was an over the top outlandish gay character that they wheeled out in the dying days of Southwest championship wrestling on USA network. And for 1983, I I'd never seen anything like that. This predates uh, what Vince McMahon did with Adrian Adonis. And at mm. the time it was so over the top. Oh yeah. And they immediately put him with Tully. I mean, he came right out and was, unless I'm remembering it wrong. No, you got it. Him having anybody. Else. He was with Tully instantly. He was always there their main guy, their main heel. And one other one other thing related to, to his persona and his nickname, years later, after he had become established as Burt Prentice and left that character behind, I was on the old uh, Wrestling Classics message board that you might be familiar with, and uh, his name came up regarding something, you know? And I said, well, I, I saw him probably the first thing he ever did in wrestling when he was uh, in Southwest is Christopher Honey Love. And that got censored by Mark Nelty, the uh, moderator, administrator of the page. He took such offense at me calling him Honey Love. That's what he calls himself. <laughs> I didn't make up that nickname. No, you did not. That's, that's weird. <laughs> anyway, before everyone started dying on us, this was the show we we're going to do. Um, I have, both Scott and I have a copy, a digital copy of the pro wrestling torch from August, 1988. And we're going to go over the ratings. Obviously we're not going to have time to go over everyone, but I thought this was really interesting. The people who voted some well-known names, we have Brad Breitzman, who's a regular on this show, Wade Keller himself. Let me see Mick Karch, a couple of other people that I kind of recognize, but they voted on the wrestlers, not based. Oh, that's Kurt Brown. Okay. Kay Brown, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've got some pretty knowledgeable people voting. They are voting on not titles and pushes, but they are voting on the wrestler's in-ring ability. Some of this I dis disagree with, but I know that this was done for fun, and we're just having fun with it. So we're going to roll out number one, the best wrestler in the world, August 1988. Rick Flair. Scott, can anyone argue with this? Not me, but I did when I was thinking about that. At what point did they start calling Rick the greatest of all time, or did he just start calling himself that and the public, you know, or the fans sort of caught up with it? You know, there was a time when he was active, 
where he was literally considered not just the greatest wrestler now, but the greatest of all time. And that may still be the fact, but was it run by the promotion or, or did fans start calling him? You know, I don't know what, what happened where he became acknowledged while active as the greatest of all time. I, I, I do remember this. I actually remember yeah. this. It was right in the oh, newsletters, great. right around the time he was feuding with Terry Funk. People started calling him, you know, perhaps the, the greatest wrestler of all time, including everybody, including Buddy Rogers, everybody. In 89, that run, I guess. It was right around then, right around summer of 1989, and when I, I noticed that started to happen. Late. And this poll is 88, right? Yes. ratings. So they have mm-hmm. him as yeah. the best, the best wrestler in the world, but not the greatest wrestler of all time. That's coming. That's coming up in about uh, twelve months. Yeah, <laughs> another year. Yeah, and now it's only extracurricular outside the ring stuff, and the fact that he's hung around so long that people who didn't grow up watching him now kind of think, oh, they only know him as old Ric Flair, which is embarrassing. You know, Th- that was a little little bit of a come down because he definitely stayed around a long time, but it also took a long time before he started looking and acting old. Yes, it and did. Just still here. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching him on raw like 20 years ago and he physically, he looked like 1970s, late seventies, Dick, the bruiser. I mean, he was getting, you know, both hair Ooh. and physique, but he could still wrestle. And his last, Big match uh, against Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania was was a fantastic match. Not saying it's a fantastic match considering that Rick was in his mid fifties. It was just a fantastic match. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's they came up with an idea, and they did it letter perfect. You know, the aftermath and everything else in the Hall of Fame, and everything was was wonderful. And whoever came up with that, you know, hats off to them. This idea of him, you know having a retirement match or having his last match, but nobody asked him, are you ready to retire? They just said, Oh, we've got, we've got this great ankle. Yeah. In in months, he's already taking any job he can get, you know, but uh, yeah, he definitely, even now is probably not ready to, to stop. Oh, he's ready. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure Rick has wrestled his last match, but, Oh, I remember that weekend. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure too. But I'm not. I'm not a Saudi sheik throwing throwing <laughs> money around. You know. Uh, good point. Oh. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. Just this week, Ric Flair uh, left the WWF. Uh, they they parted ways. So you're right. You never know mm-hmm. what Tony's going to do. Yeah, and he'll be back. Someday. He'll be back in some <laughs> role. I really think not only do am I convinced he's wrestled his last match. I, I think he's taken his last bump. Perhaps. Yeah. Who knows what crazy thing. Yeah. There's all kinds of people like that, that are, you know, Terry Funk. I, I, the last couple of years of his career as much as I, he's my favorite. I know Flair is yours. And in the last couple of years where he would take fewer and fewer jobs, he would still, you know, Tommy Dreamer would put him on, a little run for house of hardcore or something like that. And I was, Oh, please stop calling him, you know, <laughs> just let, let him have a, a nice life, you know, at the ranch or, <laughs> or whatever it is. But I don't, 
I took no pleasure in seeing him as a deathmatch wrestler. And he hung around a lot longer after that. Anyway, we're not talking about him right now, but... No, I mean, you know, the, the Chainsaw Charlie stuff in the WWF, I mean, I, I get it. He was having fun, but that's not like the Terry Funk I wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not t- telling tales out of school when I look at this Reader's Rings list. And, and here it is, 88, and he's not in the top 25. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, Terry, I, I don't think Terry wrestled a match in the United States in all of 1988, which is why what happened at wrestle war 89 was such a surprise. I figured he was just finished. No, he was, this was a career number three or t- career number two, or however you're looking at it for Terry. Funk. <laughs> yeah. I waited until smoky mountain days where I started trying to show up to matches thinking, Oh, that'll be the last match he'll ever have, you know, or things that were billed as his last match. Like I went to Amarillo one time <laughs> to see what was billed as his last match. And, uh, Thankfully for all of us, it it was not. I wanted to go to that show so bad, and there was just no way I could get from either Boston, Mass., or Manchester, New Hampshire to Amarillo, Texas without spending a fortune. I'm talking like over $1,000. And I considered doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, okay, I'll fly into Oklahoma City or Dallas and rent a car and then drive four hours. (laughs) That would have saved me like 500 bucks. Yeah. Wow. That's, I've heard you mention that. And that, that's strange to me because I'm cheap and (laughs) I don't have a lot of money to throw around. And I don't remember my ticket to Amarillo being particularly expensive, but nevertheless, back to the list, I guess. I mean, well, for me, I'll I'll throw that this out there. Oh no, please. I didn't want to take like two connections, which would have dropped the price. You know, it's like, okay, fly me to St. Louis and then Amarillo. But there was like, all of those were like over a thousand dollars. It was nuts. Now I see the pictures of like you and Harry White and Brian Last and Dave Meltzer hanging out there, and I'm like, geez, I should have gone. Well, mine was three connections because it was Syracuse to Dallas or, or someplace else. Anyway, and Dallas to Amarillo, and the plane I got on from Dallas to Amarillo was the smallest plane ever, and half the people were wrestlers. <laughs> it ah. was not the most comfortable flight. But the only other strange thing was Ritz died the day before that weekend and landed in Dallas. And without even looking at newspapers, I heard people talking Von Erichs all through the airport. Wow. And uh, and then looked at the paper. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think people knew he was ill, you know. But, yeah, I literally heard people in the airport talking about the Von Erichs boys and the Von Erichs and Fritz Von Erichs. I thought, oh, this is this is crazy. And the second I walked by a newsstand, it was on every paper. Oh, wow. I, I did not know it was on yeah. the front page of the of the newspapers, but that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. He got a 10-bell salute at the, at the card in Amarillo the next night. I mean, anytime I watch wrestling from like the 50s or the 60s, and I see Fritz von Erich wrestling, the size of him compared to the other guys. And, you know, wrestlers were big back <laughs> then. And Fritz towered over everybody. And he was a big guy who could work. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. You know what? This is this is always a fun hour for me every week because I get to hang out with someone like you and talk wrestling. If the the conversation strays a little bit, you know, organically, I'm fine with that. Yeah, these were these are the conversations that that I've always had, and probably within the last 
five or ten years, podcasts were invented. <laughs> Otherwise, that. I'd be boring. I'd be just boring you on a on a long distance call <laughs> or on the computer. Exactly. I mean, you know, this is something I've I've always wanted to do, and I'm glad. I thanks to Brian Last and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, I now have the the platform to do so. All right, number two. We'll do the top five, and then we'll do some weird ones. Number two is Ted DiBiase. Are you on board with this, Scott? Um, I didn't see too much of him then. I saw him in Georgia for a while. But, you know, looking back now, I, I believe what everyone said. I got to see him, you know, just on his way out of the WWF, you know, the North American champion days yep. before he came back. But, um, yeah, no, I totally believe that thing that, I'm sure you have uh, theories or real reasons as to why he never did get the title, but uh, you know the NWA title, I should say. But uh, number two, well, looking at the list, yeah, that seems good. And this is a fan list. Uh, yes, it is. But, uh, he was awfully good back then. Yeah, DiBiase. Well, I mean, let me see. He was re- going around wrestling Randy Savage every night, and I've seen some of the matches. They're available out there, and they were really good matches. So I'm not going to argue Ted DiBiase, number two. But the reason I've always heard that why Ted DiBiase did not win the NWA title in 1981, I- I've heard he was scheduled to. He was supposed to get a big push on WTBS and, and get the title from there and then lose it to Flair at some point. And what I've heard from more than one person is that Dusty Rhodes basically got in the right people's ears uh, in order to monkey wrench that. And instead of Ted DiBiase getting an NWA champion type push, he's teaming with Uncle Elmer and feuding oh. with the Freebirds. So that, that's what I've always heard. Dusty used his political pull to uh, sabotage that. Ted DiBiase was supposed to win the WWF title. And wound up going to Randy Savage in order to placate Randy when Honky Tonk Man refused to do a job uh, on Saturday, on not Saturday night's main event, the uh, Friday night primetime special. And all three guys yeah. have corroborated that. People still deny it. It's like, look, everyone involved said, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, that, that's a, truly a case where it was the Honky Tonk Man's fault. <laughs> it, no other way to put it. And, you know, Vince, I mean. You think about where he was before the WWF picked him up. I mean, he was still wrestling Calgary, Memphis, and they gave him this huge push, this huge gimmick. And this is the way he thanks Vince McMahon. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't down with that. Yeah. Well, he's with guns. I mean, even to this, to this day, remember the year they wanted to put him in the Hall of Fame? And he was like, ah, you know. You're in Phoenix, you know. I live in Phoenix. I won't even get a vacation for my family. So no, I'm not going this year. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely remember that. And I'm like, what is up with this guy? But <laughs> he got what he wanted in the <laughs> end, know? just like the Intercontinental Title thing. Yeah, if you're not the main guy going in, you know, you're just kind of you know set dressing. He he's the only one who gets it. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, good for him. I mean, he's an interesting guy online. I never got into the Honky Tonk Man character, but it worked. It sold tickets. What am I going to say? Oh, yeah. I I, I liked him in, in spite of the, the ridiculous gimmick. <laughs> uh, no, I, that, that to me, just like, was, was above and beyond no, no. anything that I Vince had done. 
I didn't mm-hmm. like it. But anyway, as a wrestling traditionalist in my early 20s, I did not like it. Number three, yeah. we have Barry Windham. I think he could arguably be number two. He he, what a year he had in 1988. He went out there and proved that he could be a main event, uh, a championship level type star. Oh yeah, we, you know when you illustrate that. Yeah, DiBiase was working with Randy Savage. Not that those weren't good, but so gimmicky, you know. And Randy or uh, Barry Windham was uh, was uh, you know still in his prime back then, and he did have a. An astounding year. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, he, he fell off a cliff soon after this. When he went to the WWF, it was like he looked almost bored out there, uninspired, and then they let him go. And yeah. he was just never the same. This, this is peak Barry Windham, 1988. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I don't know if I ever saw him. Live. I'm trying to think live if I ever got to see him when he was really... I saw him as a team with Rotundo, and that wasn't, he was still in great shape, but that wasn't the greatest team I ever saw. That 1987 show uh, in Boston where Stan Lane started with the Midnight Express was main evented by Ric Flair versus Barry Windham, and it was an outstanding match. Four stars, no questions asked. I believe that. All right. Number four, we have Kurt Henning. Your thoughts on Kurt Henning being number four here? Where was he at in 1988? I'm trying to remember. He had been AWA champion until May when he lost it to May 1988 when he lost it to Jerry Lawler. And right about now, Mm. he is just starting with the WWF with the Mr. Perfect gimmick. I remember the gimmick, which everybody now remembers those vignettes of Wade Boggs and whoever. They're like, oh, those were so great. But back then, the hardcore fans, you know, the guys that would compile these reader ratings and things like that, boy, they hated that Mr. Perfect thing. Or anytime somebody they loved would be saddled with a gimmick. And I remember him getting destroyed in the, in the newsletters. So I'm surprised to see him lifted that high. It was only a, it was, took a while before that took in the, uh, in the eyes of the fans. Uh, yeah, I mean, here's, I think, number four. Yeah, no, he was, I'm sorry, yeah, he was really good, but yeah, I I remember it first, which goes on to this day, anytime somebody shows up there and are given a new name or a gimmick, everybody just is beside themselves, oh, why don't they just let him, (laughs) let him alone, let him use their own name, but yeah, yeah, terrific, who was he, I'm sorry, so he was just starting as Mr. Perfect, I'm trying to think who his first opponents were when he came in. Oh, I mean, obviously, you know, he was doing squash matches on TV at first. And then I think his first real program was against Bret Hart. And those matches were good. Yeah. I got to see a couple of those, including here in Utica. That's the ones where they would pass up to a draw and then five more minutes. Oh, terrific. Yeah, I thought the Mr. Perfect gimmick was, I mean, it's well, it's remembered fondly, but at the time I thought it was way too much like Ted DiBiase's gimmick and Ted had had only debuted like a a year earlier. Frankly, I think number four is way too high for Kurt Henning here and I'm not taking shots at anyone. I mean, these guys are mostly from Minnesota and so is Kurt Henning. And I think that bias is sort of showing here. 
yeah, he's getting it. Yeah, if he's really just starting, he's getting a, a grace period from all the people that remember his, you know, the stuff with Bachwinkle and whoever just before he left. Yeah, that's that's a good point. He really came into his own in 1986, but before that, Kurt, I I thought he just wasn't that good. But I mean, it, it takes a while to get good in wrestling. You got to have experience. Well, I remember him the first time. The first time he was in the WWF as a preliminary wrestler where he was given the incredible gimmick. You talk about bad gimmick. His gimmick, when he first came in, was young Kurt Hennig. Yep. That was it, young oh, Kurt Hennig appro- in 1981. Appropriate, but <laughs> he was young, but... <laughs> ah, just a young guy figuring it out. I'm, I wonder if I saw him. I, 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 is it possible? Did I see him wrestle? I don't specifically mean Utica, but I saw him wrestle. I think I saw him wrestle Eddie Gilbert in Utica. And of course, at the time, had no uh, frame of reference for what that would mean <laughs> in later years. I saw him wrestle Charlie Fulton in Nashua. They, the WWF came uh, to the junior high school gym, and I, I got to see that match. Number five is Sting. What are your thoughts on Sting being number five here? <laughs> well, was was he working with Flair then? Yes, he was. Okay, I, I'll. I'll uh recuse myself because I've never liked Sting. Wow. <laughs> if anybody ever ever gives me an opportunity, it, it, it's me. It's not him. It's me. I never liked him. I just never liked the, the gimmick or the character, you know. I certainly, I like all kinds of crazy stuff. But even to this day, can you remember a single memorable promo ever by Sting? And that's, that's, that's exaggerated. You know, you don't have to be the greatest on a promo, but his main catchphrase was stolen from Ric Flair. Woo! <laughs> his haircut was stolen from Brian Bosworth. <laughs> I remember there was a memorable <laughs> sting. Uh, what is it? A promo he did. It was before the clash, the 1988 clash of the champions match with Flair. So he's still kind of a mid card guy. They're building up and they did something with Ric Flair appreciation night somewhere. This was on NWA pro wrestling. And Sting came out to challenge Flair, and J.J. just undressed the guy. He's like, look, this is Ric Flair's night, and you're interrupting. You shouldn't be out here. And Sting just didn't have an answer. (laughs) He was flabbergasted. It was funny. J.J. just (laughs) switched into a baby face. It was great. Yeah. Petty larceny, though. Yeah, he couldn't, uh, as Nikolai Volkov used to say, step for an answer when somebody says hello. You know, it's... he, well, he, yeah, he had, again, it's, it's my personal dislike, not of him as a person. <laughs> no, it's never it's personal. So we all have our favorites. But, but yeah, no, I never, never liked anything about his act. Now it's not outright disgust or hatred, like, like watching the uh, ultimate warrior, <laughs> but, but it was just something he never did anything for me, but he must've been already tied to flair to get that that i don't know just maybe people thought he was looked great and was so great you know he had a certain factor yeah and i'm yeah and i'm saying that these ratings are all from you know what we called hardcore insider fans yeah there's no denying he had charisma but that just never never clicked with me of course you know stuff with flair was fantastic you know yeah he was just 
45-minute match that made him, you know? Oh, absolutely. And and that was a, a fantastic match. By this point, I think Sting was transitioning into a kind of a minor feud with Barry Windham over the U.S. title. Now, I'm looking at this list, mm-hmm. and by the way, I'll I'll post it on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page so everyone can look at it. One thing that really stands out to me as completely odd on this list, number 15, Mondo <laughs> Guerrero. <laughs> I was just looking at the list going, oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, where, what was he doing? He I was in the remember. AWA a little bit, but, I mean, I, I can't remember anything. I always liked Mondo as a worker. He was probably yeah. a little too small, but, I mean, him randomly being number 15 on this list, like ahead of Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, is a little bit weird. Yeah, was he in Memphis at that time? He did some funny stuff in Memphis. Oh, no, that was not, Hector. I'm thinking of Hector. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. That was Hector. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah, 15. I'm sorry, Mondo. Yeah, I can't see it. I, I, my Guerrero's I... mixed up. <laughs> uh, another one that is really odd. Once again, we're talking about Bobby Eaton. How is Bobby Eaton all the way down to number 23? The Midnight Express were white hot as a tag team at this point, and we all knew who the worker of the, in the Midnight Express, uh, the Stan Lane version of the Midnight Express was. Nothing against Stan, but you know, Bobby was way ahead of him. Yeah, yeah. I guess they, I would say they just weren't thinking. I mean, Midnight Express, if we, if people had the ability to look over at the tag team ratings, they're number two, just below the Fantastics. So whoever was going for this just wasn't con- some of them were so blown away by Bobby, and rightfully so, but they thought he's got to be on the singles list. Bobby probably got a couple of singles matches <laughs> back then that we don't recall. But, uh, yeah, they just didn't consider him a, a singles wrestler, but some people just said, oh, he can't be denied. He's got to be on the list. You know, one thing that's interesting, they had the Midnight Express at number that two. Still ex- that still doesn't explain Mondo. No, it does not. I, I like I said, it, 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 this is so random to me. Mando Guerrero being number fifteen. I like the guy, but he's not number fifteen. The Fantastics are number one ahead of the Midnight Express in this poll. Now the Fantastics were an outstanding tag team, but I'm just a little bit surprised that they're rated ahead of the Midnight Express and Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. Yeah, yeah. We're wow. I'm looking at the list here. Where's Rock and Roll? Were they inactive? I don't. Yeah, I think they had split up at this point. I think they were outside of the the NWA. Okay. And now we have the Road Warriors, number four, on a list that's not supposed to be about push or championships. It's supposed to be about work rate. And they're rated ahead of the Rockers, the Rougeos, the British right. Bulldogs. Kind of a mistake, I think. Yeah, but trailing them from behind was bad company. <laughs> the AWA bad company. The uh, Paul Diamond, uh, uh, Pat Tanaka. <laughs> you know, Tanaka that, was really more, good around that point. The, yeah, yeah. I never thought they were bad, but same thing. They never, they never clicked for me. I always thought it was their their gimmick was no gimmick. <laughs> it was strictly you know their their <laughs> strictly their ability, and who needs that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, poor yeah, Pat Tanaka has to go out there with a manager that's like a foot and a half taller than him. And look, so their number, Bad Company is number five. Look at number seven. 
bad company. <laughs> oh, you know what? They were two so bad companies. That's right. Yeah, that's that. But B A Double D was the A W A bad company, and trailing them very closely is the Calgary bad company. Yeah, the Calgary bad company was. Owen Hart, who was fantastic. Oh no, it was yeah. It was Brian Pillman and Bruce Hart, and Pillman was really good. Yeah, Yeah, I'll say this. Uh, And you know, Scott, thanks for being on. The the hour always goes by so fast, but I'll say this: like in in 1988, I was a bit of a mental case when it came to like getting wrestling tapes. I had started getting the Observer like a year and a half before. And by this point, everything was in place. I was getting every promotion under the sun. I mean, we're talking both Japan promotions, uh, Calgary, whatever was out there. I was getting Jerry Blackwell Southern Championship Wrestling. So (laughs) I was in a good good position to make a list like this. But not everyone is, you know, not everyone's going to take the time, effort and expense to, you know, make sure they get their all Japan tapes or their Memphis tapes, whatever. Mm -hmm. Did you correspond? I know you corresponded with the, the Observer. Did you ever write in to uh, the Torch? I don't remember if I ever wrote a letter to the Torch. I used to, I would subscribe on and off. I was friends with Wade. I, I roomed with Wade once or twice. Really good guy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I called in results a few times and talked to him. Yeah, I always enjoyed talking to him. Uh, you know, there was a period that you went through, too, where I bought every sheet i could lay my hands on <laughs> but then, I, but then I, at some point i would I, I don't need all these you know that's but, exactly uh, where i was you just don't you just don't need all I of them back and he's still working away you know he's still doing what he does almost in a very quiet way almost back then there was a time where the observer was so great it was just essential but i'd tell people if they were just getting into reading newsletters it's easier to break in reading, uh, reading uh, the torch <laughs> before you, before you graduate to, uh, to the observer because that that would uh, throw you for a loop the first time you saw it. Well, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast. I mean, I was up until the sun was rising the day, the night I came home <laughs> from a Christmas party, and the observer was here for the first time, and you know, just uh, just oh, an yeah. unbelievable night. You know, middle of December, nineteen eighty six. Uh, Scott, it's always a pleasure to have you on. It's always a pleasure to hang out. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm sorry for uh, the uh, extensive uh, Ramones talk. <laughs> but that's another one of my favorite subjects that I haven't uh, found a podcast for you. <laughs> well, well, you, you still this. have time. All right. Thank you. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. And I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 